everyone have their different moments of sparking. But after a few weeks, you didn't hear a lot of people talking about Breonna Taylor anymore. You didn't hear a lot of folks talking about Tony McDade anymore. You didn't hear, you know, it, it all of a sudden Instagram and social media went back to normal. And then you have another emergence of a black man being shot by the police. And then it's like, hey, what happened to all your posts previously? Now what? This is the I Make a Living podcast brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. I'm Damona Hoffman. And in addition to being the host of this podcast, I'm also a black entrepreneur. My core business is as a dating and relationship coach, but in my previous career as a media executive, I also launched diversity programs at NBC and CBS. So I've been carrying the torch of underrepresented voices for a long time. At FreshBooks and I Make a Living, we don't think of Black Lives Matter as just a slogan or a one-time protest that we can now put behind us. There is an ongoing conversation to be had about how we must value Black lives and support Black businesses, and this podcast is dedicated to continuing the discussion. This episode is not just designed for Black entrepreneurs. It is for everyone to be educated, engaged, and accountable for what happens next. My guest today is social entrepreneur, Antoinette D. Carroll. She is the founder and CEO of Creative Reaction Lab, a nonprofit social enterprise designing healthy and racially equitable communities for Black and Latinx populations. Here's Antoinette clarifying exactly what this means. Depending on who you talk to, some people think that we're architecture firm, which we're not. Uh, some people think that we're community organizers, which there's elements of that. Some people like to equate us to urban planners and like many social workers. I've been called many, many things. Uh, at the root of our work is honestly education, civic engagement, youth leadership, and really wrapping it all up with a bow of creative problem solving. And so for us, when we are looking at how do we design healthy and racially equitable communities, our approach to it is amplifying uh, Black and Latinx youth to actually be the leaders in addressing these racial equity challenges. And what I usually tell people is that our organization would not be the ones to address food deserts or food apartheid. We're not going to get rid of it. However, uh, by the development of the young leaders in our program, they ultimately may become the ones that will develop the shift in policy or a different organization that actually will dismantle it at its core. And so for we are looking at our work through the lens of not just putting, you know, a band-aid on issues, but how to really think about this long-term sustainable a shift in addressing particularly the racial and social challenges impacting our communities and recognizing that we need people and intervention to actually get the job done. So let's unpack that a little bit. I had the pleasure of watching your TED Talk. and Which one? <laughs> one of them in which you you mentioned in this TED Talk that different forms of oppression are by design. And I think this is really revolutionary 
thinking to remind people that it's not like we just ended up in this situation with all of these inequities. A lot of the inequities were actually created Mm -hmm. and designed to be able to keep people in subservient positions or in positions to retain power, right? And so with your design background, you're really looking to redesign these forms of oppression that especially are impacting Black and Latinx youth. How do we even begin to do that? Like when we're born into the system that we are in, and I think a lot of people are finally just waking up to like, oh, wait, there actually is inequity. And now we have to figure out why. And then we have to figure out what do we do about it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How do you how do you redesign the whole system? <laughs> and so it's such a big challenge. Well, I think, well, first I would say I'm a drops in the bucket type of girl. I And I also look at my work as cathedral building. So I don't imagined um, in my life that the work that I'm doing or honestly that will design a truly equitable society within my lifetime. I mean, I'm an optimist, but I'm also a realist at the same time. And so, you know, I first believe that you have to start with actually raising people's consciousness, uh, which, you know, one of the greatest tools uh, that has been utilized in our history of not only the United States, but in our world is the tool of division, but also the tool of erasure. And, you know, many of us are not even aware of our own racial history to even understand what needs to be dismantled and what needs to be redesigned. And so that's the first thing we actually start with, but we don't end there. And so we're not an organization that's like, let's do an unconscious bias training or talk about microaggressions. It's like, that's great. And what are we actually going to do about it? And so that's where the design element comes in, which for us, design is the intention and unintentional impact behind an outcome. And so really thinking through what are different uh, design approaches that I can take to actually address issues such as food apartheid or public transportation access or digital redlining? And, you know, does it take the form of creative placemaking? Does it take the form of policy shifting? Does it take the form of curriculum design? First, having to build your own consciousness, but then also looking at how do we build uh, a space of collective mobilization and honestly, history and healing and and grappling with that. And then actually trying to amplify our own power. Whereas in the indigenous community, they actually push away from power, but say actually focusing more on balance. But how do we get to the space of balance of of being able to uh, actually challenge these systems from either within as entrepreneurs, from outside of the system as entrepreneurs, or ones that's pushing against both as organizers. And so that's the approach that we're taking. We're not giving people this roadmap of saying, this is how you must do it, which is what you saw a lot when it came to protests on the ground. You know, that's not how you protest. It's like, how are you tell people how they're supposed to push against systems that have historically oppressed them for so long? It's like there's many different ways in which you reach people, and there's many different ways in which we need to create uh, the systemic shift within our society. The idea of dismantling systemic oppression is intensely overwhelming and intimidating, even for entrepreneurs who are impacted by it every day. Antoinette's approach is to start with community education. She herself is an accomplished academic, but surprisingly, you won't see any of those accolades listed on her bio or on LinkedIn. To me, those accomplishments are something to be proud of, so I had to ask her about it. 
as a woman of color, I was always told you have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Mm. So there was always this feeling, I feel like for a lot of people of color, like you have to get the letters after your name. You have to get all of those accolades to be taken seriously and be able to make an impact, even to have a level playing field. Yeah, well, I was told that as well. And I would say probably earlier in my career, I very much had that mindset. I don't really have that anymore. Like, I, I actually tend to push against professional pedigree or academic pedigree. I didn't go to, as we quote unquote call, the private top colleges. And, you know, I didn't go to any of that. I was a first generation college student. And so when I started, it very much was. I have to get these degrees because so many of my family were not able to even graduate from high school. And I need to push to actually gain access to this world uh, that we weren't privileged to kind of engage with. And then ultimately I learned over time that actually the, the living expertise, the living knowledge is what should be centered, not whatever degree that I own. And so honestly, besides you mentioning it here on the podcast and during our dialogue, most people will find that you don't really see my degrees in my bios. And the only reason is even like the MA is on my LinkedIn or whatever is because it kind of automatically populated that. And the same when it comes to like with the fellowships that I've been in, some of them have been outright. They came to me. Other ones I actually did apply for, but it was because I was looking for either like professional development growth or I was looking for, like, for instance, as a TED fellow, a platform to amplify the work that the young leaders were doing. And let's be honest, TED Talks are all over. And so it was always a strategy. But for me, even though my husband would obviously disagree with this because he very much believes that I'm a workaholic, uh, for me, my work, it isn't work, it's um, my purpose. Like, I am rooted in this idea of how do I, uh, one, have greater connection with my legacy, but then also how do I leave a legacy once I become an ancestor to actually create a change and a shift uh, within the Black community in particular, and particularly also for Black women. That's that's really profound. When you think about the fact that you're really mission-based, and I guess that's part of the reason that you are probably in the nonprofit space over, uh, I think there's a lot of people listening that are like, well, should I do a for-profit business or nonprofit? But when it's so woven into the fabric of who you are, what you believe, and also the kind of change that you want to make happen in the world, it sounds like you're letting that guide what's next for you rather than how much money can I make or how can I see my name up in lights? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, I my husband tells me all the time, he's like, do you know how much money you would make if you actually worked in corporate? Um <laughs> I tell them all the time, it wouldn't matter because I would be fired by day two. And that's because like day one is when you do paperwork. So they haven't heard you really talking about anything. Whereas day two, you actually are having conversations and they would not be able to deal (laughs) with my personality in a lot of corporations. I won't say all, but, you know, I'm actively a person that's talking about dismantling white supremacy and how colonization has impacted our communities and I don't believe in playing the game. I don't believe in code switching, which I know some people have to do to survive in in certain environments. And that is their choice. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing for them. But for years ago, I made a decision that I would accept whatever consequences come my way, positive or negative, for me just being authentically who I am and staying liberated through my authenticity. I want to 
really drill this down so that this is accessible for all of our listeners of all backgrounds. And there are a lot of terms you threw out that I'm familiar with, but they might not really understand. And I think some people may have just bristled even at the thought of the word white supremacy. (laughs) So I don't want to gloss over it. (laughs) We talk about the hard stuff here on I Make a Living. How do you define white supremacy? I would say that there's this misunderstanding that many people believe that white supremacy can only be perpetuated by white folks, which is not true. Um, Like when we think of white supremacy culture, and I recommend people go to um, a tool called Dismantling Racism. But when you think about white supremacy culture, there's a lot of these different tenets, such as paternalism, um, quantity over quality, uh, perfectionism, that um, really is kind of amplified through this Eurocentric approach. And a lot of us have been seeped in white supremacy culture that we're not even aware of it. Like, for instance, in indigenous culture, it's all about community building. Not saying it's not like that in in white cultures, but community building, but also taking the time to build at the speed of trust, not really having um, this, like, dedicated agenda or timeline, which has now been, in many cases, seeped within a lot of our entrepreneurial, our our corporate, but, like, our our work in, quote-unquote, professional environments. Also, this tendency to want to save others or help others. And many times we haven't even reflected on ourselves and, you know, what are our biases, our privileges? How are we creating opportunities for growth? How are we creating harm in our community? And so, you know, as a Black woman, I was seeped in the culture of white supremacy, just like a white person. And it's something that I have to continually unpack and unlearn, opposed to just being, oh, it's just relegated to people that identify a certain way. But it, it really is through this lens of also this kind of superiority complex of centering certain identities, particularly white identities as the quote-unquote normal or the status quo, opposed to actually questioning uh, why do we actually view certain standards that tend to be associated with white culture as the norm, uh, opposed to other groups that honestly have, like, for instance, oral storytelling as a form of learning and appreciating history, but we tend to focus on the written word, which tend to come from more Eurocentric mindsets. So there's a lot of things to unpack with white supremacy, but I think there needs to be this reality that we all have been seeped in that culture. And many times we are not even aware of how it's impacting how we show up in spaces. You're really making me think deeply about this and how, even as an entrepreneur of color, like how I may have bought into that idea. I think it's it's also presenting it in the way that this is a challenge that we're all working on together to redesign the system and for us to all take responsibility for our thought process and our, you know, and being complicit in perpetuating that culture. There's another term you use that kind of illustrates that point, which is code switching. Can you just explain what code switching is and how you've seen it operate in the professional sphere? Yeah, it's where um, particularly people of color are in predominantly white spaces and they have to shift their language, shift their mannerisms, shift, honestly, how they uh, dress to um, present themselves as <laughs> unthreatening. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it's, it's like I, I talk a lot around like the reality that we need to be uncomfortable 
And that's actually when we grow, like discomfort leads to growth. But yet um, majority of cultures are teaching us that we need to make people comfortable. And typically it's make white folks comfortable for us to survive. You have to play the game. And I personally have no interest in that (laughs) whatsoever. I just don't. I've been on calls with folks in which... They were talking about their new diversity and inclusion initiative. And so I turn around and ask, well, are you paying these folks? Because most of the time, the diversity inclusion initiatives are led by people of color that are trying to find a space of community and of belonging. And, you know, particularly in this instance, it was a white man. And he's like, well, and he was very proud. You know, oh, we have this new diversity uh, steering committee that's coming up. And, and I'm like, well, are they getting paid? And you just saw like this blank. And he's like, uh, <laughs> um, well, no, they don't, they're not getting paid and we don't have a budget for it. And I'm like, so tell me how this is supposed to be helpful for anyone. Because in many cases, they are reliving their trauma and the situations that they've had to navigate to even get in the room to then try to make your institution better. But yet you're getting paid for your time and they are not. Yeah. Or there are employees that are being asked to put on an additional hat for no additional money, right? For no additional money. Um, and I know some people look at us at sometimes at Creative Reaction Lab because I'm always asking, are you paying folks? And um, the reason I ask that is because I believe that people should be valued for their time. And there's also kind of this tension of like devaluing folks to try to make people look good or kind of have this performative change. Whereas if you're not even making shifts internally of giving people power of paying them for their time of giving them a budget, then are you actually doing the work or you're just trying to do another Instagram post saying we care about black lives, but you actually truly don't. In case this wasn't crystal clear, diversity, equity, and inclusion positions are no longer just an option. They are a part of the new corporate structure. A lot of us aren't at the point where we're building a corporate structure yet, but it is something that you should keep in mind as your business and your team grows. And in the meantime, that means that you can go ahead and add that to your job description too. I really want to bring our listeners into this conversation about these diversity and inclusion initiatives. Many of them are solopreneurs, entrepreneurs with small businesses, Mm -hmm. so they might not necessarily have a whole team. But I actually have a background of having worked in diversity and inclusion inside of a huge corporate media company. And I'll tell you, I was thrilled to do the job because I felt like it needed to be done. Mm -hmm. And it was an excellent foot in the door or what seemed like a step up for me. But I ran into a lot of these problems of the diversity feeling like because we have the diversity and inclusion person, it's done. Like you're saying, we got the Instagram post. This is before Instagram existed. But, you know, like we've got the headline and it's being taken care of. Damona's doing that and our diversity and inclusion is good. I think the problem that a lot of companies face is they think that diversity and inclusion is an extra thing Mm -hmm. that comes from outside or maybe from in their own organization, but from the periphery, as opposed to it sounds like the way you're proposing is make it basically the core of the company from which you build all of the spokes out of instead. So like you, I also have been one of the folks that was internally uh, pushing for change and I was happy to do it because, you know, like you said, the work needed to be done and it was something I was passionate about because it's centered one of my identities. And um, I 
recognize that this work is not just relegated to one person, but honestly, um, a collective and, and a co-creation effort. And so at Creative Reaction Lab, we now talk about it through a larger lens. We say, actually, we need to have a movement of redesigners for justice is what they're actually called. And then there's two different elements of it. One is situations in which you're an equity designer and then situations in which you're a design ally. And understanding, honestly, in many cases, when should I be centering my living knowledge connected to the inequity that we're addressing? And when should I actually be leveraging my power and access on behalf of the folks that have that living knowledge? And so, for instance, I can be an equity designer for uh, Black women. I can be an equity designer for um, people that are survivors of gun violence, but I cannot be an equity designer for uh, the LGBTQIA plus community. But I can be a design ally for that community. And thinking about um, how do I put people in equity first? How do I make sure I'm embedded in the community I'm working to change, opposed to coming in with this umbrella or a fishbowl perspective or the savior complexity of let me come help you uh, when I'm not even affected by the outcomes or whatever is being developed? Uh, How do I constantly continue to iterate, make, and improve on interventions, build upon existing resources, and be very conscious that you know, communities already have people doing a good amount of the work. When you look at the impact they've actually made in the community, it has been substantial. And a colleague of mine that lives in Detroit, she usually says that, um, and I love this when she says, Detroit is not a blank canvas. And yet many people coming into Detroit, and I, you can remove Detroit and put whatever neighborhood you want, uh, particularly ones that with more so people of color, folks want to come in and try to improve it through their lens and their narrative opposed to the folks that actually are proximate and the folks that have that living knowledge. And so whether you're in a corporation or you're within your neighborhood, really thinking about what issues are we working to shift uh, and improve in our community And should I be the one that should be centered because I have that living knowledge or should I actually be centering other folks and using my power to actually assist them? So speaking of allyship, which it sounds like is basically what you just described, there are a lot of entrepreneurs listening who I'm sure want to be an ally and are in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and the conversations that we're having right now. But it can be a little bit uncomfortable if you feel like, well, I don't know if I belong here. If I'm not directly impacted, should I be marching? Should I be helping? Should I be volunteering within the community? Or am I not really wanted there? Am I part of the problem? You may be. What would you say to that? (laughs) (laughs) If I'm going to be honest, you may be. Okay. How do you find out if you're part of the problem or not? (laughs) And then if you find you are part of the problem, how do you unpack that and make a change? I mean, when when it comes to people that are looking to do this work, like, are you there by invitation? Are you there to actually help? Are you there to make yourself look good? I mean, I've seen the photos of particularly the, the social media Instagram ambassadors or like influencers that will go to a protest, pose and do a quick photo, and then they hop in their car and they're on their way. You know, like, what are you actually looking to accomplish? And are you recognizing that this work is lifelong? Like, even as a Black woman, I recognize that there's so many things that I don't know. 
And there are so many things that I'm continuing to learn and in some cases unlearn. And it makes me uncomfortable. And that is a good thing. <laughs> because like, I am hopeful that by the time I'm in my 80s that I am still unlearning and people are still challenging me and that I am building my knowledge because there's so much beyond just our current lifespan. And so, you know, if you are there just for a performative act to say, hey, I attended a protest, then yeah, you might be part of the problem. If you're actually there to learn and to support and not learn through the lens that you're expecting folks to educate you because there's a thing called Google. And <laughs> also, if folks want to educate you, that's their choice to educate you. Yeah, it, you're saying instead of going to your friends of color and saying, can you explain can you explain racism to me? I don't really understand. You're saying that that is placing undue responsibility and stress on that person to explain it to you. Right. You're asking people to relive their trauma, you know, whereas, Mm -hmm. again, made a conscious choice a few years ago that I will be okay with educating folks, but I made that choice. There's plenty of folks that said, I don't want to be centered and have to continually educate you. Because again, what is the actual value for these folks to provide you this insight? Sometimes it seems as if folks show up and then expect gratitude because they decided to carry a sign. And it's like, that's that's not how this works. You, you mentioned social media, and I'm curious if you feel like there's a way that entrepreneurs should be showing up in social media right now if they want to be allies. Like I can say I write a lot about diversity and my experience and experience of my clients in my field. And I've gotten dragged (laughs) on social media and in comments in the Washington Post for, you know, just asking people to open their eyes to the conversation. And uh, I try not to read the comments, Antoinette. They tell us they tell us not to read the comments, but it's hard sometimes. I've been called many names in some comments. So I'm not going to lie. So one thing I would say people could certainly do is if you have a dissenting opinion from people who have nothing better to do than troll, it really can help for you to speak up when you see injustice happening. You mentioned like around the dinner table with your family, but also within social media. Are there other ways that you think people can show up like on social media at personally or as their brand? Or do you feel like it's tricky to mix those two things? I tend to mix mine. You know, I'm not going to lie. Like even LinkedIn, which is where most people try to put on airs and, you know, oh, look at my professional job, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like on LinkedIn, I even would writing posts about me being a proud black woman and that if you have issues with that, then you don't need to partner with me. <laughs> like, I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I've, I've told, right, you know, (laughs) I've, I've told donors, you know, like they clearly didn't understand our mission. And so it's, yes, you, you can use social media to share about yourself, but also recognize again, you may have some folks that are in disagreement with what you're saying. That's okay. You may have some folks that may block you, um, you know, that, that happens too. But I, one thing I will never want people to assume is what my opinion is. Because what happens, especially for folks that are like entrepreneurs that are leaders in leadership roles, is that we're so focused on the professional image that people start to create the narrative for us on what we believe because we are sitting in silence. And um, when the 
protests reemerged because, let's be clear, they did not stop. This racial justice work has been going on for generations. De- decades and you decades. You know, yes. right? It's, it's amazing. I mean, people are like, this is a new time. And I'm like, is it? I think it's a new time in terms of the protesting, obviously, and the people speaking, like you and I speaking up. I do feel that people are hearing it in a different way. And my hope is that the momentum continues. I will sit and say maybe for some folks, because the thing is, everyone starts the journey at a different time. So this may have been that moment of spark for them, just like the uprising of Ferguson may have been a moment of spark for them. Trayvon Martin may have been a moment for spark for them, right? Like everyone have their different moments of sparking. But after a few weeks, you didn't hear a lot of people talking about Breonna Taylor anymore. You didn't hear a lot of folks talking about Tony McDade anymore. You didn't hear, you know, it, it all of a sudden Instagram and social media went back to normal. And then you have another emergence of a black man being shot by the police. And then it's like, Hey, what happened to all your posts previously? Now what? I've seen this repeat cycle a few times at this point. I'm welcome to the folks that are joining. Cause I think every time you have folks that wake up in those moments. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I encourage people to, to make it sustainable and, when George Floyd first started to really get pressed, that was a hard time for my family because my um, brother actually was an unarmed victim of gun violence two years ago. And, you know, it was he was 14. And so when everything was happening, this was also a really hard time for my family because it was the two-year anniversary. It was also the two-year anniversary of us losing our uncle when he was in his early 40s, just five years ago. So it was a hard time for my family. And I wanted to sit in silence because I was grappling with my own trauma. But then I recognized that my silence wouldn't help anyone. And so I it, I didn't look the greatest on that video, but I went on my Instagram and, you know, just talked about how like silence doesn't help anyone and that we need to make sure that this is sustained. Um, and even when some people may be sitting in silence, particularly people of color, it may be because one, they're tired. Tired, right? <laughs> And we're we're hurting. And I don't know how many more videos I can watch. As I said in the beginning of this episode, this conversation is a resource for anyone who wants to learn and do their part to make an impact. So before we end this interview, I want to give you a clear understanding of what we mean when we say Black Lives Matter. For some of our listeners, they want to be allies and they're trying to understand their place in this movement and even the foundation of the movement. So there's been a lot of pushback against even the term Black Lives Matter. And, you know, you hear the the term All Lives Matter. You know, (laughs) there's like deviations to to that philosophy. Can you explain just simply why Black Lives Matter and why broadening it out is actually doing a disservice to the movement and the reason why we're having this conversation? You know, for me, the question I want to actually push back on with folks is why do you feel the need to put a counter argument on saying Black Lives Matter? And really sitting with that and asking, why do I feel that I need to challenge that? And, you know, it's... It's interesting to me when you have folks that say blue lives matter or all lives matter, whereas they weren't saying it before, but then all of a sudden when black people 
start to push for recognition um, after centuries of oppression. You know, civil rights movement, I actually saw a comedian that talked about like how black folks, we just ask for the bare minimum and we still get pushed back. You know, like the civil rights movement. Just, can they just matter? Like civil rights movement. Can you just be civil with us? You know, when black lives matter. Can you, can we just matter? You know, and it, and it amazes me even with the basic necessity of just recognizing that black lives are continually disproportionately dying at alarming rates. Um, whether we talk about police brutality, but we also could talk about you know, social determinants of health and, you know, like investment in community. Like the reality is that black people are dying at alarming rates um, that are extremely higher than most. Uh, There's also, you know, also cases where indigenous folks are also dealing with that reality as well. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation found that every seven minutes a black person dies prematurely due to the effects of racial discrimination. Every seven Mm -hmm. minutes prematurely. Mm-hmm. And and in my family, you know, I haven't on my grandmother's side had any black men make it past the age of 55. Oh my god. And so oh. to when folks come and ask like, you know, well, why not all lives matter? Um it's like when we are talking about breast cancer awareness, no one is saying but all cancers matter. You know, like, yeah, right, it's like right. we, we know that, you know, cancer is a major issue. And we also are recognizing that in some cases, cancers or other illness or whatever it may be is substantially creating a lot of harm that we want to recognize at certain moments. And Black Lives Matter is another one where mm-hmm. we have a lot of black folks and, you know, our black children are being killed for carrying fake toys, <laughs> like literally fake guns. Breonna Taylor was asleep in her bed. You know, it's like right. this. And right. when folks come back and push on, well, what about all lives? I think there needs to be really kind of an internal reflection on why am I actually uncomfortable with just trying to give Black folks the basic necessities of just recognition and acknowledgement, um, and therefore need to center myself. Because usually when people are saying all lives matter, they're just trying to center themselves, opposed to actually providing space for people that have been crying out for centuries in this country and has yet to receive the investment and the acknowledgement and the, honestly, love, support, and liberation that we are due in this country, especially since, let's be honest, we built it for free. So true. Yeah, I would totally co-sign on that. Like, you know, I have the black side of my family and the white side of my family. Um, in my my mom was one of eight siblings, hmm. and she's the only one left out of eight siblings. And she's in the middle. She's not even that old. She would she <laughs> she would get mad if I told her. How old she was. <laughs> But she's not that old. She's like, don't be telling you know, my age, my girl. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, for sure not. <laughs> but then, you know, on the white side of my family, I would say the median age is literally like 95. Mm-hmm. And no, there's no one on the black side of my family that has even gotten close to that age. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I used to just think, oh, well, it's it's hard living, you know. Detroit, hard living. But like when you really start to unravel that, Antoinette, and you look at, well, what is the reason that that side of my family has had such struggle and the other side of my family has thrived, there's a really clear and a really painful answer to that. This this work for me, when I said it's my purpose, it's lifelong. Um, and so when these moments happen, it's not 
it's not that I'm being negative. It's more of I'm trying to hold people accountable to make sure that this is not just something that they can to look at their grandkids and say, you know, when I was younger, I participated in a Black Lives Matter movement by going to one protest. But really mm-hmm. looking at it and say, what did I actually do and how did that shift my personality and, and shift my belief system? And then how am I supporting you also on your journey of building your racial consciousness? Here are a few big takeaways from Antoinette. Sometimes placing the burden of education on your friends requires that they relive the trauma of their experience. Put your money where your mouth is. Make diversity, equity, and inclusion a priority in your organization and pay those employees for the work they're doing. Education and action. Just like in every other aspect of your business, DEI initiatives require education and planning. Keep an eye out for bigger and better opportunities for your team. The children are our future. Learn from your mentees. They are the leaders of tomorrow and their perspectives are valuable. Check out Antoinette's work at the Creative Reaction Lab and look out for two new programs she's launched. Refresh, Redesigning Education for Racial Equity and Social Healing. Refresh is an intergenerational civic engagement program for youth and educators this school year. And Artwork for Equity, which selects young Black and Latinx designers and artists, 26 and under, to produce original images in the form of posters promoting inclusion, equity, liberation, and justice for all races. FreshBooks is proud to stand against racism, white supremacy, and injustice, and is committed to support Black-owned small businesses and Black entrepreneurs. I encourage you to continue this discussion with me on social media at Demona Hoffman. To all those inspiring people around us using their voices, platforms, and resources to fuel change, we see you, we're listening to you, and we're ready to do the work alongside you. This podcast was brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. We have so many tools to help you financially during this challenging time. Check out the exclusive offer that's just for our podcast listeners at freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L. That's freshbooks.com slash I-M-A-L, short for I Make a Living. Our audio engineer and composer is James Morris. Our associate producer is Leo Shell Villanueva. Our producer and director is Paco Erzmendi. And I'm your host and producer, Demona Hoffman. Let's connect. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Demona Hoffman or at DemonaHoffman.com. And remember to be the change you wish to see in the world because it's your business. See you next week.